Welcome to At the Crossroads Church weekly podcast. Our hope is that you will grow in your walk with God and be blessed and encouraged in your daily lives as you listen. You can visit us at our website at atthecrossroads.ca. Awesome. Let's stand and let's just pray and we're going to dig right into this today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it doesn't return void, but it accomplishes what it's sent forth to do. Lord, we ask that you'd speak to our hearts and change our lives in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. And so uh, this morning, I just, I just kind of wanted to answer some questions. Um, some questions, uh, as I said this week, it's going to be kind of an outreach Sunday. Um, and we just re- really want to talk about who is Jesus and what it means to be a disciple. We're going to talk about those things. And we're going to give you some examples from the first century church and from a modern day example. And we're going to talk about how to stay in a place of discipleship. And the question I have here is, who is Jesus? And so when we we look at the first sermon ever preached, Peter got up and he preached the word in Acts. He says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 24. See, he was a man endorsed by God, right? We know he was the son of God, but the Bible says here, People of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth. How? By doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. So people knew of Jesus, right? I mean, if someone moved into our community and started pulling people out of wheelchairs, healing them of cancer, the whole community would know, right? And so he said, you already know this is happening, right? Look what he says. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed with the help of lawless Gentiles. You nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not hold him in his grip. Right? And when so we see that Jesus in the first century was recognized as a a prophet at first, people began to realize he was the son of God, but they couldn't find his body, right? That's why 2,000 years later, we still worship Jesus, not because the Bible tells us to, but because his body's missing. We worship him because it, it, we have a resurrected Lord. He, he, ra- he, he rose from the dead. Uh, there's, they, they, they have no evidence that they can find his body anywhere. His disciples who were in doubt began to believe it because they saw him come. And they began to give testimony, not as crazy, but but people who were willing to even die and lay down their lives for what they believe, right? And so we read the Bible because it confirms what we know to be true, right? The Old Testament prophets, New Testament scriptures outline and show us that Jesus is who he says he was. He confirmed the prophecies throughout the scripture, right? And, and, and here's the thing. Who was Jesus? He died for our sins. We understand that. But in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it says, After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. This is John the Baptist giving testimony. And a voice came from heaven, and he said, This is my dearly loved son, who brings me great joy. And so Jesus came and showed us how to know the Father. He he didn't come just to teach us 
uh, good principles and teach us how to live. He came to do that, of course. But he also came to say, hey, this is what it's like to have a, f- a relationship with the Father, right? And the Bible says God is love, right? And so the disciples then came and asked Jesus when they were following him, and said, hey, would you, would you explain, show us the Father? What is the Father like, right? And he began to say, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the because he's the exact image. We see that in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. If you want to understand what God's like, read the Gospels. Okay? Jesus did good to all. All who came to him, it says he healed them all. He cast out their devils. He fed the poor. He took care of the widows. He was giving giving, giving. And because he had a relationship with the Father by the Holy Spirit, he was calling us to follow him and do what he does, right? And so um, he, told, he told those who followed him, he said, you must be born again. He said, you need to have the Spirit of God come and live in your life. And what happened when he died on the cross, we understand this, that that the veil was torn, and no one had access to go into the temple to the presence of God except for the priests once a year. We understand that. But that veil was torn, sim- sim- symbolizing that no man has to go behind an earthly veil. You can have the presence of God. You can have a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through another person. You don't have to go to a certain church. You don't have to listen to a certain preacher. You yourself can have a relationship with God the Father. And when Jesus was baptized, we just read, he came up and the Spirit of God came and, 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 and this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And what happens to us when we receive Jesus into our life, Romans chapter eight fifteen says, for you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. You know, sometimes Christians who claim to know Jesus... God knows if they do. They've given their heart to Christ. Live in a lot of fear. Fear of tomorrow. Fear of regret. Fear of hell. You know, fear of breaking the commandments of God. Fear, fear. And they're driven by fear. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to please God. And all those things are good. We want to please God. But we didn't receive bondage to fear. In the Old Testament, they were afraid. Oh, we can't break God's law because they didn't have a relationship with God. But look what it says. But you, say, I have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy God. Isn't that awesome? We're in a relationship. So the same way the Spirit of God, the God opened the heavens and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I believe the heavens are opened over your life. And God the Father is saying, you are my beloved sons and daughters in whom I'm well pleased. Right? The Bible says that the, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so love, just begin, you begin to, God loves me so much, I don't want to hurt him anymore. I don't want to do what he doesn't want me to do anymore. And that's what happened. That's my testimony. When I received the Lord, it wasn't like, you didn't have to tell me, you shouldn't be watching R-rated movies. You didn't have to tell me, you shouldn't be hanging out with these people anymore as close friends. You didn't have to tell me, you know, don't do this, because my heart changed. I was like, I don't want to be around that, because I just want to be in the love of God. 
And anything that separates me from his love, I just want to get it out of my life. But it's so easy for us to get away from the foundation, which is love, and move back into works. I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to please God, I got to do this. And the primary thing we're to be rooted and grounded in is love. Faith works through love. So we need to have that love. And not, I'm not talking about ooey-gooey, you know, romantic love. That's important sometimes, right? We have that. My wife and I, we have a romantic love. And that, now she's going to say, you said that. Now you've got to take me on a date. So I can, I can read her mind. And it's not the prophetic. I just know. Where are we going on a date tonight? Um, but God has not given us fear. He's given us love. See, God's given me love. And out of that place, we need to be, he calls us to be disciples. You know, a disciple is a devoted learner. A disciple is a devoted follower. And um, we hear a lot of people say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. But what is that? Because the word Christian wasn't even used uh, in, the, in the Bible very many times. The word Christian is used three times, say three times, in the Bible. But the, the actual, the word believer is used 26 times. But the word disciple is used 260 times. And so the word Christian is something we adopted. It was actually used first in Antioch. We see that in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, if we go there. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were were first called Christians at Antioch, which means little Christ or followers of Christ. But how many know that we are called not just to be Christians, but we're called to be disciples? And disciples look at their master and say, how would you do it? And then they begin to do it that way. Do you guys remember back in the 90s that in the early 2000s, we got into the what would Jesus do bracelets? Like that was an amazing, we should bring that back. You know, because when you were with people, you weren't thinking of, okay, what's the right answer? How can I, what's the right information of do's and don'ts I can give people to help them? But when you had that bracelet on, you weren't thinking that. You were thinking, what would Jesus do? How should I represent him in this situation? And it changed the whole way you looked at evangelism, outreach, right? Didn't it? And, and, and that's what discipleship is saying. What would Jesus do in this situation? Disciples always identified with their teacher, and the world revolves around their teacher, okay? Now, um, today there's a lot of attack against Christianity. There's a lot of people claim to be Christian, and God knows their hearts, but the issue is, are we disciples? Are we followers of Jesus, all right? And I, I just wanted to point out a few things um, that we see that Christianity has done. I'm going to take, give you two examples, one from first century and one from modern day, just within the last few years, what God is doing in the church and what that looks like, okay? So our first century example, I do a little bit of reading because I want you to get the picture here. In the 1800s in the U.S., there were 5 million immigrants, but 20% were slaves, the age of sexual consent in most states was 9 or 10 years of age. Like, we, we have this mindset. I think the devil kind of tricks us into thinking that things are getting so dark. Jesus, come back and rescue me. But every generation had its darkness, right? 
and, and, and it was bad all the way through, but it just manifested different. So here we have the consent of sexual consent was 9 or 10. Abortion was legal through most of the 19th century. According to records, more than one-fifth of all pregnancies were aborted with Michigan having the highest rate of 34%. Can you open that for me? Thank you, hon. Um, <clears throat> in New York, in New York City, there was one prostitute for every 64 men. Like, think about that. You know, we think about today the, the issues we have uh, with pornography because of the internet and magazines and stuff like that. But going back... It was like it was, they had prostitutes. They still have the same problem. It just manifested different. Okay? Uh, the mayor in Savannah estimated that in, in his city, there was one prostitute for every 39 men. Okay? The church-going population was 30 to 45%, which was high, really. But were they walking in it? Were they disciples or were they just claiming, I'm a Christian, I say my prayers, I go to church, and I'm going to go hang out with the prostitute? Like, I mean, what was happening? And, and, and so the Native Americans were being forced off their land. They were being killed. Like, so we're talking about racism that was happening. And um, I think the church, the kingdom of God's influence, has created a lot of change for the better, wouldn't you say? I see a lot of change because the church is standing up for truth. And the Bible says if there was not a remnant, we would all become like Sodom and Gomorrah. So sometimes you get discouraged and say, you know, things are evil. I want to say this. If it wasn't for us believers, sons and daughters who are praying, who are going to church, things would be so dark, I don't think we could comprehend it. So say kudos for me. All right? We can, always look at, we can always look at the negative and say things are getting bad. Or we can say, you know what, I'm the wall that's keeping things from getting worse. I'm standing up as a son and daughter and I'm praying against evil, right? When Jesus left earth, he left a few Jewish believers to start a movement. That movement was called the way, the way of Jesus. It grew to 2.6 billion, 27% of the earth's population now claim to be followers of Christ. This is like, if you think about it, a small group of people, 2.6 billion people say they know Jesus because of that. Isn't that awesome? And how did a group of people who were persecuted by their fellow brothers and sisters, as well as persecuted by the Roman government, ever manage to continue to thrive against such opposition? Okay? They were cut off from buying or selling in the city markets because Nero, the Roman Nero, he, look what he said. He, you had to worship and proclaim that he was Lord, which meant bowing to his statues as you entered the market, at which time you were marked using charcoal from burnt offerings to Caesar. You were marked. Okay, either on your right hand or your forehead, which would allow you to buy or sell in the marketplace. Without taking the mark, you could not buy or sell. Does this sound like Revelations? And so Nero got a hold of that and said, yeah, I'm, gonna ma- I'm just going to manifest this. I'm going to be the Antichrist. And it, it was horrible what he did. And he would persecute the, ch- the church, and he, he would actually use them tie them to posts, and he would use them as lanterns. He'd light them on fire for his parties. I mean, the cruelty was unbelievable in the first century. In the first century, the word gospel uh, and evangelize referred to the heralding of good news, that a new emperor had been installed as the Roman Empire was now in power. And so heralds 
we call preachers now, but heralds would go out to proclaim the good news, informing people that a new era of peace, salvation, and blessing had begun. They would often proclaim the forgiveness of debt to the empire to gain the support of all the people. And then they told people to get down on their knees to worship the new emperor, to proclaim the new emperor that, or Caesar that he's the new Lord. Okay? And this new emperor or Caesar was viewed as their Savior. So when we're getting all this writing in the New Testament, they're referring, he's trying to give us a picture of what it means to serve the Lord, and he's comparing it to Rome, and he's comparing it to, you know, heralding a new Savior has come, and he's bringing joy and peace, and your debts are forgiven. And so the gospel was presented with that worldview in mind. Does that make sense? The good news is that God has appointed Jesus as his chosen king, and his kingdom has come to earth, and it has changed everything. It wasn't that they would go to heaven, but it was an invitation to leave a worldly kingdom where there was no hope and join a kingdom of, loving, of a loving king where there was hope for everyone, not just for the special appointed people. When early Christians proclaimed Jesus as Lord, they were saying, Emperor or Caesar, you are not my savior because I have pledged my allegiance to another king. And I am a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of the earth. So you can see why the persecution was so strong. Your kingdom isn't my source of hope. And these people who had nothing going from no government support and persecution from everyone managed to preserve and expand the power of God to this generation. And so how much more as believers now don't lay down the f- people died to protect this. And there's people now, there's churches that are preaching and saying, well, the Old Testament isn't for today, and you shouldn't be, you know, uh, they, they, they make grace as hyper, you know, hyper grace instead of talking about grace as an empowerment by the Spirit. And they're compromising the word that people laid their life down for. And so we have to make a choice. Are we going to be a people who believe God at his word and follow it, or are we going to compromise? 40% of the people were slaves in the early church, in Rome, I should say. And Rome had a very, uh, very strong culture at the time where Rome was committed to their pagan gods because they were winning all the wars. They were unstoppable in their minds. Okay? By our standard, their culture was far worse. Pedophilia was accepted and embraced. Homosexuality was very common, especially between their masters and their slaves. And they'd be married, but they'd have a relationship with their male and female slaves. So, Sexuality was very loose. Sex with both men and female prostitutes at the Roman temple was encouraged as normal. You need to go to worship and, you know, you can just imagine. Uh, Inhumane torture and slaughter of people was the norm in Rome. And this is where the church had to come in and start to shine a light. And we get bent out of shape when we hear that they're going to pass a bill to do this or pass a bill to quiet. And we should be concerned but we don't, we don't know what it's like to be persecuted, amen? And these guys, they just stood up. While babies weren't aborted in those days, it was common practice to throw them off into the ditches, throw them into the woods for wild animals to eat them if fathers did not accept them. That was common practice. The first century Christians developed a reputation for taking in and caring for abandoned babies. They'd go out in the woods and they would find a baby in the woods and they would take the baby and they would start orphanages. That's the whole concept of orphanages. It started with the church. All right? And um, 
Infanticide was not only legal in Roman Empire, in certain circumstances it was considered an obligation. Emperor Claudius famously forced his wife to abandon a baby daughter she conceived with a free slave. And um, so, so there was all this stuff going on. It was pretty dark, right? Babies were left to starve, freeze, be eaten by wild animals. Babies were abandoned for various reasons, including birth defects, suspicion of uh, infidelity, and in case, uh, and sometimes for gender reasons as well. They wanted a boy, we had a girl, we'll get rid of the, the baby, right? And so this kind of stuff was happening all the time. And so what the first century church did in their day was they would go to these places I just mentioned. They'd visit the sites where the children were commonly abandoned, took the children's to home, raised them as their own, and long before there were any laws that existed, um, there was this expression of sacrificial love that began to touch and change the hearts of the Roman Empire because they saw their own kids being raised and loved unconditionally by Christians, and that expression of love began to open their hearts to say, there must be more. Isn't that good news? And so it was like just the love of God that began to birth the kingdom in Rome, okay? And I think instead, sometimes instead of using our time to hold picket signs and, you know, if, if, we, could, if we could help single moms in needs, if we could get involved with families and love those who are struggling with decisions that are confused concerning what's right and wrong and love on those people, how much more could we change society? Amen? And I mean, I could go on and on and on. There's so much the early church did but it was birthed through love. We're going to love. We're going to, we're going to unconditionally love what's being discarded in society. And that's what God is calling us to. So that's a first century example. Can I give you a, a second cent or a now example? Can I do that? I'm giving a lot of reading, but I think it's interesting. So I'll go. We got this. We were at OBFF conference, and Pastor Mark Murak gave us some of these stats. I wanted to share them with you. Um, there was an article that was published in the San Francisco Chronicle. This is the most anti-church newspaper in the United States. This newspaper is so against Christianity. But look what this writer had to say. He called the article, is this heaven or is this Redding? And we're talking about Redding, California. Okay. Um, this city has 91,000 uh, people that li- is uh, in that area where Bethel is. How many heard of Bethel Church? Okay. 11,000 members and committed to a community so intense, it's almost supernatural. This is, this is a person that normally writes bad about the church. No institution in our state is better at engaging with its hometown. Okay? While the experts say civil engagement is supposed to be strategic, planned, and targeted at specific issues, Bethel's engagement with Reading is big and broad, touching almost every aspect of civic life. It is grounded not in the language of activism, but in the celebration and with love. The love of God and of the place where you live and the people in that place. This lack of structure in Bethel's assistance to its hometown suggests a broader lesson for community building. Stop overthinking things and just throw yourself heart and soul into addressing people's needs. This is what he's saying. When Reading's civic authority was failing, Bethel helped put together a nonprofit 
advanced Reading to fix its management. When the Reading Police Department was about to lay off four police officers, Bethel raised the money to keep the cops on. After the car fire destroyed more than 1,000 thousand residents' homes in the summer, Bethel gave $1,000 cash to every family, church member or not, that lost a home. Okay? Bethel also has connected Reading to the world. Bethel, which has a global disaster response team and a Christian music collective with international reach, helped persuade the United Airlines to start daily nonstop service between the two airports to get people back and forth. So, so, so they're doing stuff to affect their city, right? Bethel inspires service with two messages. First, it teaches that through God, individuals can triumph over challenges and experience miracles. Second, the church consistently celebrates the city and highlights opportunities to join community projects. Bethel really encourages everyone to take ownership of the area, to live your faith in a way that's felt, says Major, uh, Mayor Julie Winter, a church board member. Bethel says that God is for you, then who can be against you? So why not start a new business? Why not volunteer to make the city an amazing place? Why not, in my case, run for city council? Okay? Bethel founder as a small, was founded as a small Assemblies of God congregation in 1950. And so he, he goes on to read a bunch of things here. I'm not going to read the whole article. Um, but look what he says. Usually my phone rings. Okay? Um, Someone, someone wants something. This is what the police department is saying. Usually when the phone rings, somebody wants something, says the police. Chief Roger Moore says, but when they call, it's always to ask if we need anything. They have never asked me for anything. And so the end of the article, he says here, this community is a place where you can realize your lifetime dreams. And he says, is Reading, is it Reading as it is in heaven? And so this, this is just showing the world, listen, we're believers, we're followers of Christ, we give, we serve, we love. And how many know you can attract more bees with honey than with vinegar? Amen? You, you really can. You know, a few weeks ago, I made a big mistake because I went outside, and, uh, well, this was about a month ago, and there's a big beehive, right, hanging, you know, in our gazebo, and it was like this big. And it was actually like a yellow jacket, one of those wasp nests. And so I got my spray, and I went out at night. I did it correct, because they were all sleeping, and I sprayed the hive. And every, everyone inside died, right? So that was a month ago. A few days ago, I walked outside, and I noticed, my kids pointed out, that they now moved addresses. Their home was destroyed. But now they're going in a crack in my brick. How many know? And they were, I was watching them going in and out. I'm going, okay, there's going to be a nest in my walls. And it's midday. So I went and grabbed the spray, not thinking, and just, and I sprayed this thing. And then I left it. And a few minutes later, I came out, and there was hundreds of bees trying to get in there. And I thought, I should have did it at night, because then I could have killed them, right, and been done with it. So I don't know why I shared that, but um, (laughs) maybe, you know, whatever the case, honey draws more bees than vinegar. And so we... It's not that we don't, we share the truth, we share the gospel, we tell people, listen, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, I'm not better than you, I'm just better off because I found Christ and I want you to have my Savior. And you begin to attract people to Jesus through the gospel. Isn't that good news? But here's the, here's the last question and then we're going to be finished. How do we live as disciples? 
How do we do what the early church did? How do we uh, respond to our communities the way Reading uh, Bethel Church responds to their community? How do we become disciples of Jesus? And I think this is really cool because I had um, Brett in this week. We, Brett and I had a little hangout here and a little talk, and he was telling me about the sunflower. And then I began to look at that and began to really open my eyes to, to how creative and how awesome God is. Have you ever looked at nature and said, God is so creative? And, you know, a sunflower is really cool because a sunflower, will, 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 when the sun comes up, its head will face the sun, and then it will follow the sun through the day and then go down. And then during the night, it will turn its head back to the east and come up and follow the sun and go down. And um, the sunflower knows where the sun comes up and from where it returns. And I think as believers, one of the things we have to understand is that um, we have to keep our eyes on God, right? Keep our eyes on Jesus. The Bible says Jesus is the author, setting our eyes on things above, not where, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, right? Setting our eyes. He's the author and finisher of our faith. We need to set our eyes on him, all right? And I believe that when we rise in the morning, our thoughts should be on the Lord, as we go throughout the days, our thoughts are on the Lord. When we go to bed, our thoughts are on the Lord. And then we reset. In the morning, we wake up and our eyes are on the Lord. And we set our eyes on Christ. That means we set our eyes on our relationship with the Lord. We begin to live a life of love. We begin to sow out of, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not a religious thing anymore. So I'm doing my thing and these people aren't saved and we're saved. You just begin to live Jesus because, great, you know, it's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. Why? Because you're setting your eyes on him. You're setting your eyes on relationship with him. And people begin to say, I don't know what's different about you, but I want to be around you. Why? Because you bring hope. You bring peace. I heard a story this morning. So, uh, one of our members here in the church was telling me that, one of her daughters is just going, man, I don't know what's different, but, like, you're, you're awesome. There's, like, joy in your life, right? And it's just like, what's different, right? God will do that in your life. When you set your affections on him, everything else comes into play, right? And um, the other thing that's really cool about the sunflower, and I could spend a lot of time talking about sunflowers, because as I was looking at this, I was blown away. The second lesson is because of the central focus, sunflowers stay unified in purpose and position. I have a little video. I just got to show show that little video clip. Just um, it's kind of an animated thing, but it shows you what really the whole field of sunflowers. If you could speed it up, this is what it looks like. It's really cool. Just kind of give you an idea of what it looks like if you could actually time lapse, like speed up, staring at a field of sunflowers. And the one thing with sunflowers is they got this heavy stem. Anyone see how thick a stem is? And at our wedding. You know, Camilla had sunflowers. I, I, I was going to bring a picture because you had to see. She had a bunch of this bouquet of sunflowers. And the stems were that big around, and they were all tied, and they were cut with a sharp point. And when she was about to throw those flowers, you should have seen the girls. Or just <laughs> and she just threw those things. I thought, I hope nobody gets hurt, man, because those things, oh, those things are deadly. You did throw them, though. I had you throw them. Yeah, yeah. Mollen, Mollen cat caught them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, and they, yeah, we're going to try a Canadian thing. My wife's going to throw flowers. We're like, I don't know about that. Those things are going to kill me, right? So, um, but here's just a couple scriptures, and we're going to close here. Um, because of the central focus of Jesus, the Son of God, 
Sunflower State unify in purpose and position. Look at this scripture in Psalm 133, verse 1. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. How? In unity. Right? It's so important that we learn to deal with our issues. If you have something against your brother, go make things right. Why? Because we want to be unified. And the only way to stay unified and in purpose is if we all are looking at the sun and we stay unified in purpose. Isn't that good? Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 11.1, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. And so I want to encourage you guys, um, you know, this week as you go, uh, why don't we stand? I'm going to just pray with you guys. Let's, Let's say a prayer. Father, I thank you for every person present here, God. I thank you, Lord, that we're sons and daughters uh, in your kingdom, that your spirit cries out in our heart, Abba, Father. And we're so thankful that we're your kids, God. But I thank you, Father, that we will always remember to keep our focus on you, Jesus, that our eyes are on what you're doing from morning to night. Our eyes are set on the things above. And, Lord, as we focus on you, discipleship will begin to happen. We'll begin to see people's lives change. We'll begin to see, and it's no longer just be, I'm doing this because I'm supposed to do this, and this is what Christians do. It'll be, I do this because I want to be in your presence. I want to learn what you're saying I should do in life because my eyes are set on you. Help us to imitate you, Jesus. What would you do in this situation? What would you do in that situation? And that's what the early church did. You know, hey, there's kids in the ditch. What would Jesus do? Well, he would gather them up and start an orphanage. When we see problems, God, that we would see them through your eyes of love. In Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if there's someone in this place you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you might have gone to church, you might know about religion, but you've never said, Jesus... I want to look to you as my teacher, and I want to be your follower. Lift your hands. I'm going to pray with you. If you're in this place, I see your hands. That's awesome. There's one person's hand. Anybody else? You, have, you want to put your hand up? Say, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. I want to have a relationship with Jesus. He died for my sins. I want in on that. I want, I want, to, I want to, my sins to be washed away so I can know Jesus, know the Father. If that's you, lift your hands. Anybody else? Okay. One person put their hand up, and I don't want to um, call anybody out. So I'm going to have everybody pray this together, okay? Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. I want to have a relationship with you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. Come and live in my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed our message. If you are in the Quinty West area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning at 24 Dundas Street West, Trenton, Ontario. Check out our service times on our website at atthecrossroads.ca.